This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. As everybody probably knows, the CDC just released a report this past year showing that one out of every 88 babies born today will have an autism spectrum disorder. And what's striking to me about this study is not this very high rate, but the fact that 40% of the children in the study were not getting a diagnosis until after age four. This is a very big problem, Um, particularly if we look at this old schematic from Connell in 1939 that shows frontal cortex circuitry in newborns, one-month-olds, six-month-olds, and two-year-olds. And you can see that, as Eric Cushane and others mentioned, we're all born with all the neurons we'll ever have, with the exception of in the dentate gyrus. But largely, we have all of our brain cells. They're not particularly well connected up as a newborn. One month, not a lot of local uh, connectivity happening. But around six months to two years, there's a nice exuberance of connections that begins to take place in the frontal lobes. Well, if we're diagnosing autism out here, what we're faced with now is the challenge of trying to positively impact functional connections after they've been largely established. So that's a problem. And it's also a problem from the domain of science. If you want to study the early development of autism, you know, examine biomarkers, understand what's going on during early development, how are you going to do it if you can't really even find subjects until age three? So at our autism center here in San Diego, we developed an approach to to study autism starting at 12 months, what I call the one-year well-baby checkup approach. The rationale behind this approach is that if you administer a broadband screen to all babies when they go to their doctors for the first checkup, you'll catch cases of autism. And the strength of this approach is for screening for autism at every first birthday is that you'll improve the standard of clinical care for all children and it allows for the prospective study of autism starting at the first birthday. It also has a scientific advantage because if you use a broadband screen to the first birthday, you're going to catch not only kids with autism, but you're going to catch kids that have a language delay and a global developmental delay, which helps them, but it's also great scientifically because you can use those groups as as really important contrast groups to, to understand how the trajectories are similar or different between autism and other disorders during early development. And what's really nice is that you you have sampling of autism as it occurs in the general population, not just in multiplex families. Because people who are in the field of autism research know that the only way that scientists have historically been able to study early development is with the baby-sibling approach, which essentially means you're a mom, you have a child with autism, you're pregnant, and then scientists will study that second child with autism with the understanding that there'll be around 15 to 20% chance that that second baby will also have autism. But the issue with that is it's incredibly important to do, but it only studies autism as it occurs in multiplex families. And we're not positive yet that the ideologies are identical between babies who come from simplex families versus multiplex families. So how do we do it? We actually use a really simple screening tool called the CSBS Infant Toddler Checklist developed by Amy Weatherby and Barry Present. Super simple, 24 questions, and it asks the parents, do you know if your baby is happy and when your baby is upset? 
And the parents answer, it takes them five minutes, and there's cutoff scores, and if a baby fails, then they come to our center for evaluation, or they can go somewhere else on evaluation, but we can study them, and we can help them, we can treat them. And as I mentioned, it catches babies who are developmentally delayed, language delayed, as well as ASD, down here at 12 months. They all look very similar, but as they move across in development, their trajectories diverge, and as they get older, 18, 24, 30 months, the kids with autism look very different than the language delay and the developmentally delayed kids. So what do we do? We get these 12-month-olds who fail the screen. They come to our center for research. Uh, one of the things we're doing is we're looking at eye tracking. And the nice thing about eye gaze is, as Dr. Meltzoff mentioned, and lots of people understand, is that from the first days of life, babies are attracted to the human face. They, they love to look at faces. They love to socially interact. And this is a landmark study by Gorin in 1975 and replicated by Johnson in 1991. I love this study because what they did was there are these nine-minute-old babies, and uh, mom just gave birth, and a scientist busts into the room with a paddle. <laughs> and the paddle has a face or a scrambled face or a blank, a, you know, kind of a blank paddle. And then they, they put it in front of the baby, and they track how, how much time does the baby spend looking at the face versus the scrambled face versus the blank paddle. And even at nine minutes old, babies will spend a longer time looking at the human face or face-like structure. So what if we did this with young kids with autism at, say, 12 months, 15 months? If I gave them a movie, a preferential looking paradigm, where they're seeing something that has kids jumping around, very engaging, or these repetitive shapes, which they might be interested in selectively, uh, are they going to look here or are they going to look there? This is a simple one-minute test that we've researched extensively, and I want to show you how a typical 14-month-old watches this movie with the red dot indicating where the baby's fixating and the size of the dot represents the duration of gaze. So a bigger dot means the baby was staring, essentially. And I call this the geometric preference test for autism. This is a typical 14-month-old baby. looking back and forth at both sides, but he's pretty excited about this side. <laughs> so now this next slide shows, uh, this next movie shows a 14-month-old um, later diagnosed with autism. Actually, 15-month-old. You can see if you can notice any differences in eye gaze patterns. So this is not just an overall you know, phenomenon with this one individual baby. Here's uh, data that we published in archives in, in 2011 with 110 babies. Here are the ASD cases shown in red circles, typical in blue squares, DD contrast group in these, green, in these green triangles. Right here on this side, this shows the percent of time a baby was looking at the geometric patterns. And because it's a preferential looking paradigm, by default, if you're looking at geometric patterns 70% of your time, that means you were looking at the social 30. So you can look on the other side. You can look at any individual baby. So this kid was 55% and 45% in social. So you can see the value for every child. And if I set the threshold at 69%, only the ASD babies prefer geometric patterns at a level of 69% of the time or greater. 
Typical kids didn't do this. Developmentally delayed kids did not do this. Um, so this test has really good uh, specificity. But you can see the sensitivity. It doesn't catch everybody with autism. So this gets back to the heterogeneity of autism that all the speakers have been discussing. There are some kids with autism that prefer the social images just like everybody else. But you've got this great subgroup that did selectively prefer these geometric patterns. And we were super excited about this study, so we went ahead and made sure that it was present in very young kids, and it was, 15 months, 14 months, 16 months. And then we went and ran lots and lots of subjects. We're now in the process of showing a new, it's actually, we added about 300 cases and combined the sample to have 441 cases. If you use that same threshold, we do have these two kids uh, who have other disorders, they have other delays, not autism, showing uh, preference for geometric patterns, but still the specificity is well over 95% largely only ASC kids, not typically developing kids, not DD kids, not even typical siblings of ASC cases, not even the DD siblings of ASC cases. And we even had a couple of kids that we thought were autistic, but eventually, um, by the time they turned three, they no longer met diagnosis. Even those kids were not over the 69% mark. So this, we're, we're really excited because we think it's a robust early marker for autism, which will help get kids into treatment quickly. But eye tracking isn't the only thing that we do at our center. We're also really important. Uh, we're also really excited to look at brain functional organization during the first days of life. This might help us understand how autism is different or similar to typical development. So uh, working with babies is, is uh, really an exciting, interesting challenge. But one thing you can do is called sleep fMRI. It's as the name implies. Uh, we tell the parents, let your baby skip their nap, get them super tired. And we go down to a brain scanner, an MRI scanner. As a baby's sleeping, we gently put them in the scanner, put headphones on, and turn the machine on. And we pump in some sounds while they're sleeping. And we can actually get really robust language cortex activation, which I'll show you in a minute. The great thing about using sleep fMRI, though, is you can capture the earliest stages of development. There's no minimum age. You can do sleep MRI with a one-day-old. Um, it's non-invasive with good spatial resolution. And there's no requirement to hold still. So you can study all levels of functioning. If you look at the autism literature, most of the fMRI, ERP, EEG studies generally sample high-functioning individuals with autism because motion artifacts are pretty severe, and you want to limit that so you, so you get people that are really competent, which you know, is, is good for studying that cross-section of the population, but you know, results may or may not generalize because you're only studying these really high-functioning individuals. So this is nice because you can study everybody. And Dehane Lamberts published a study in Science in 2002 showing that while a baby's asleep, if you, let's say, read the baby a bedtime story, you're getting superior temporal gyrus activation that cuts across all levels of cortex, planum temporal, superior temporal gyrus, temporal pole. Here's group data of 20 infants. These are functional activation maps. The orange and yellow colors represent regions of the brain that are showing significant activation in response to language. So we were excited because we thought, hey, this is great. We can do this. We can do this with kids with autism. And the nice thing about language is babies are born ready to uh, process language. They're excited by language. By two days old, Moons showed that babies prefer to listen to their ling native language over other, other languages. They spend longer listening to alliterative phrases. And they show larger ERP responses to syllables, ba and da, in the left superior temporal gyrus by four months in age. They can't talk, but yet their brain is ready and selectively organizing language differently than other sounds. And here's the superior temporal gyrus right here shown in red. Here's, superior, here's the sylvian fissure um, superiorly. And what's nice is that there are also structural asymmetries that we know about. The left hemisphere has enlarged white matter underlying Heschel's gyrus relative to the right. Larger pyramidal neurons on the left relative to the right. Increased contact by afferent fibers left relative to right. And there's increased area measures. So certainly, even um, 
because most of these studies have been done with adults, you can't say for sure these could be the result of environmental input and lots more language exposure that is causing this left-right asymmetry. But there are actually some studies showing, even in early development, that there are differential responses in left to right that's followed by um, structural asymmetries in left versus right by the time we become adults. And um, Randy Buckner actually published a study with 1,000 normal individuals in PNAS in 2009, and he said that cerebral lateralization is a fundamental property of the human brain and a marker of successful development. It's very robust. So if, we don't, if somebody doesn't show this left dominance pattern for language, that really suggests that there must be some potent factors that are, that are going on to derail this, because left dominance uh, activation for languages is really robust in humans. So our first study actually was done by Elizabeth Redkay and Eric Crescene and colleagues. And we had babies in a scanner, and we played them this bedtime story. It's time for bed, little goose, little goose. The stars are out and on the loose. It's time for bed, little cat, little... That's a forward simple language. One morning very early, before the sun was up, I rose and found the shining dew on every buttercup. But my lady... And then that's more complex speech. That's a little bit in advance of the baby. And then we have a, a contrast for backward speech. Just a control for language input. And um, Dr. Redkay and Crochet found lots of, lots of things, but the, the main the take-home finding was there was a really reduced left activation to language in the ASC babies. And when you did a direct comparison of uh, typical versus autism, uh, typical greater than autism is only showing up here on the left side. So there were really no areas of the brain that were equal in autism or greater in autism. Pretty much the typical individuals had much more functional activation on the left uh, relative to autism. So we went ahead, uh, Lisa Eiler, myself, and Eric Crescene did a follow-up study with a much larger sample with a broader age range. We wanted to test the original f- uh, findings by Elizabeth Redkay. And here is a coronal section showing... Brain activation, it's, it's a radiological, so right and left are reversed, in 40 babies, uh, mean age of 2.1 years, and 40 ASD toddlers, mean age 2.7 years. And this is not just one slice. I'm going to scroll you through the brain, and you can see the nice bilateral activation in the typical kids, but not so much in the ASD kids. And here's the ASD cases. We don't get any left, and we get some on the right. And what's interesting is that if you look at a scatter plot of each individual subject and you take a subtraction of their left activation versus their right activation, in typical kids, you're going to get a positive value because if they have more left and you subtract right, you're going to get something positive. Um, if you have more right than left, you're going to get a negative value. The, the, blue tr- the blue diamonds represent the typical kids and the red squares represent the ASC kids. And you can see that there's a correlation with development. Age and months, left activation gets stronger with development, and in autism, it actually gets slightly weaker. They never have a dominance of left, and the little bit they did have sort of goes down with development. So becoming more left lateralized seems to be a a nice property of normal development, but it's not happening in autism. But language is, uh, as we know from Dr. Meltzoff and other people, language is socially mediated. Babies learn language because they look at your face when they're two months old and they're socially engaged, and social behavior is is an important component of how we learn language and, and how we learn social behavior. So we also use sleep fMRI to look at right hemisphere tasks. So social behavior is largely is more right hemisphere dominant, whereas language is more left hemisphere dominant. And we call the baby's name while they're sleeping because we know that reductions in social orienting are one of the red flags for autism. Children with autism very often don't respond to their name. They have a failure to attend to social stimuli early in life. So we wanted to look even beyond the superior temporal gyrus and focus on another part of the brain called the superior temporal sulcus. The superior temporal sulcus has been dubbed the chameleon of the human brain because it's involved in so many things. It's shown here in red. 
And it's been involved in theory of mind tasks, biological motion, speech perception, face processing, audiovisual integration, and perceptions of gaze. So the SCS shows the greatest response to meaningful stimuli of communicative significance. So it's really kind of the interface between social and language. And so we did a study in progress, 31 ASD babies, 31 typical babies, using a, several conditions. Social orienting condition is we call the baby's name. Language control condition is we just had language. There was no social orienting element to it. And then we had a non-social orienting condition where the baby heard environmental sounds. And here's what this experiment was like. Watch me, Jamie. Watch me. Look, Jamie. Look. That's social orienting, so we're calling their name. In a very orienting way. Now we've now we've taken away the orienting element, and it's just a language control. Doll playing doll. Telephone ring. Telephone. So here's some, we, we did correction, and then we manually went and found the SCS for every single baby, and we masked it. And we took that mask, overlaid it on the baby's functional activation, and counted the number of voxels that were active in response to these three different conditions. So here we have the volume of activated voxels, ASD here, typical here. The green is the social orienting condition, so calling name. Pink is language, and the orange is the environmental sounds. What do you notice? Totally different gradient. The typical babies show the greatest activation to the social orienting sounds, the, the middle to language, and the least amount to environmental sounds. The ASD babies actually had the reverse. For some reason, even during natural sleep, they're having a reduced brain response when you're calling their name, middle to language, but the greatest response to these environmental sounds. So what have we learned? How do we put this all together? So this first study shows that by two years, there's a virtual lack of function responding to social orienting stimuli, particularly in the right temporal cortex. So that's this study. Looking at the right SCS, we're not seeing a lot in autism. Then we combine that with Lisa's study and Elizabeth Redkay's study, and we see that the left SDG is ineffective in autism. Perhaps maybe the right SDG takes over some basic language function. Because remember, in this study, we saw actually right activation in ASD. But that's a problem. If, you're, if the right part of your brain is starting to do some language function, it might be crowding out a cortex that should be involved in social processing. So why does this even happen in the first place? Um, possibly overabundance of neurons drives faulty and noisy long-distance connections that may lead to ineffective functional architecture. We've heard from uh, Dr. Eric Crochane. This has been identified for quite some time. First, he identified this in 2001. It's been replicated by many studies in this meta-analysis. So I bring you back to my original slide. Here's frontal cortex circuitry in autism. Here's a mean age of diagnosis nationally. Obviously, in San Diego and L.A. and hotbeds, we're doing better. We're doing earlier. But the average person in America is, is still out here, and that's really not an option. It's not acceptable. What I'd like to do is see, using first-year screening, let's identify here, get them into treatment, and we'll have a better chance of positively impacting brain circuitry moving forward. Thank you for listening, and thank you for all the great funding and collaborators and everybody. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and I want to th- uh, begin by thanking some of the prior st- uh, speakers for providing a background for some of what I'd be telling you about. I'm going to start by giving you a very brief overview about mirror neurons. Uh, I suspect most of you are familiar with them. They've received quite a bit of uh, media attention. Uh, mirror neurons are motor neurons that display a very a peculiar property of uh, firing, both when uh, a person uh, executes 
and actions, and also when the, uh, the person observed the same action being uh, performed by others. Um, they were first discovered serendipitously, actually, in the macaque monkey in uh, two different regions. Both um, You can see here a frontal region as well as a, a later uh, in a parietal area. And uh, importantly, this uh, work done in this uh, line of research showed that this Mirror neurons have a, a pattern of responding not just to goal-directed actions like you've seen before, reaching for a peanut and, or uh, for a cup or for whatnot, but also to respond to intransitive actions that are more important for social communications. And what you see here is a, a very interesting pictures of a, a monkey that was actually responding to the same uh, feelative lip-smacking gesture done by a human. So uh, this um, system has been studied, studied in human quite extensively, and uh, using a variety of different techniques, uh, researchers have identified some mirror-related activities in the human homologues of the same regions where the mirror neurons were first discovered in the monkeys. Now, what's important is that the system has been linked not just to action understanding, but also to the process of imitation that uh, Andy Meltz have talked to you about, and also this uh, in, the notion of understanding what's behind other people's action, that is, their intentions. For, so, for instance, in a study um, that was done by some uh, colleagues at UCLA, you see here that um, the people in the scanner were actually looking at a hand coming in and performing the exact same action of reaching for that mug. But nevertheless, the brain res responded quite differently to those same actions based on the context. In this case, one can draw the inference and the person is reaching in order to drink because the cup is full. And in this context, one may perhaps make, draw the inference that the person is uh, reaching for the same cup, but to just clean up after breakfast. Interestingly, this kind of differential response to the same action being performed, but with different intention, has also been observed in monkeys during single-cell recordings. Now, of course, in humans, uh, you cannot just go about implanting electrodes in a person's brain for the sake of research. And so for a while, it wasn't exactly clear that what we were observing using a variety of imaging techniques, such as fMRI or transcranial magnetic stimulation or EEG, uh, whether we were actually tapping into the exact same system that had been previously identified in the monkeys. Well, uh, thankfully, we now have actually um, been able to do so by capitalizing or... I, I'm, it's not a word that I want you to use here because this were actually patients uh, that were undergoing surgery and had electrodes implanted in their cortex because of that. But it allowed for a tremendous opportunity for researchers to actually investigate this uh, neurons in the human brain. And so, I mean, this is kind of like a dense slide, but I hope you can quickly eyeball that there are some similarities in the firing of single neurons, both when the person was observing, uh, both uh, simple hand action, but also facial expression like frowning and smiling, and when they were actually ex executing uh, those same movements. So a second important thing, other than proving that this, this system, this mirror neurons are actually existing in the, in the human brain, is that these recordings were not done in the exact same two regions where mirror neurons had been discovered in the monkeys. Because you, obviously, the, where the electrodes had been implanted depended, depended on the particular patient and the surgery they were going to have to do. So these neurons uh, that you see the recordings here were actually found outside these areas, which is inconsistent with a, a an emerging view that mirroring is not really a peculiar function of the motor system. 
but rather that it's a much more pervasive and common phenomenon whereby vicarious activity, so in our brain, the firing uh, of neurons in our brain, may also code others' emotion as well as their perception and sensation. The system has been implicated in social cognition, and again, some like Vittorio Galese argue that this may actually be the neural mechanism that may provide a substrate for what uh, Andy Meltzer talked to you about, that is this like-me analogy between self and others, that it's fundamental for the development of social cognition and for, the, uh, for human development. So... There have been a variety of neuroimaging studies that have further implicated the system in in the social-emotional domain, again, moving away from just simple action understanding. And in the realm of autism, there are now some 30 and more independent studies looking at uh, the functioning of this system in individuals with autism, but also in the general population, but relating the functioning of the system to uh, the presence of autistic traits. As we know, autism is... Is a, it's a continuum. And so you can actually not have a diagnosis, and, but yet show some traits and qualities that are similar to what you observe in individuals who do receive a diagnosis. So um, I cannot, you know, even attempt to summarize, but I mean, just suffice to say that this has uh, been found using a variety of techniques. And uh, while there are some exceptions, uh, I think that overall, the Overwhelming evidence supports the notion that the system is some, it, it's altered in individuals with autism. Now, I'm going to show you uh, some data that we have collected uh, several years ago in a task where, uh, for the first time, we looked at children diagnosed uh, with autism as they uh, performed two very simple basic tasks while in the scanner. Um, one, at one point, they were asked to just watch, simply look at the expression that they saw on each face. And in a second task, they were also asked to to make the same expression that they saw on, on those faces. What we have seen here, and by the way, TD stands for typically developing children, was that there were some sharp differences in the level of activities, I mean the red blobs, that we observed in the typically developing children as compared to the children with autism. You possibly also see some common areas of activity. These are visual areas showing that uh, both groups of children were paying attention to what we presented them with. And also you see some nice activity in, in the motor region. So this was the imitation task and so we knew that actually all children were performing the task. But this region here, which is that frontal homologs of, of the area where uh, neuroneurons were first uh, identified in monkeys, uh, did not show any significant activities in the two groups. And when we compared them directly, we also see that the difference was statistically significant. Okay. Uh, interestingly, in this study, we also found that while at the group level, there was no significant activity here, if we actually examine activity in those regions, Regions is a function of, social, of the severity of the symptoms. We found that children that showed less severe impairment tended to have more activity in this region, and conversely, the one that showed the least amount of activity in the region were the one that showed the most profound deficit in the social domains. 
Interestingly, we found these sharp differences in what the brain uh, did, even if, as you can tell from just looking at the picture of this child, every single child did a pretty good job at mimicking those uh, emotional expressions. And I think that you can see that just by looking at these pictures. So how did they do that? Well, the brain the brain uh, can accomplish the same task, relying on different mechanisms. And indeed, we found that uh, children with autism in our study showed greater activity in two regions, in the visual association cortex and also in an attentional parietal areas, which suggested that they were nevertheless able to accomplish that task of imitating the emotional expression despite a lack of an automatic mirroring by paying additional attention to what they were seeing and matching it with their, uh, to their own um, motor um, act. We recently replicated this study, uh, which was initially done in a relatively small sample, in a much larger sample of children with, uh, again, autism. And as you, what you see here um, is the region, again, the frontal mirror, uh, neuron regions, uh, that sh- where we found a very robust negative correlation between activity and symptom severity. So what you see plotted here uh, is symptom severity as defined based on the autism diagnostic observation schedule, which is one of the golden uh, standards uh, in assessing and uh, reliability of a diagnosis in autism. And uh, what you see here were children in, in red, were the children that only met criteria for autism based on the autism diagnostic interview. Something that is done with the parents that again goes back to how your child behave or what were some of the initial symptoms. So it's quite a um, heavily weighted on the early initial stages of development. Here you see children that were on the spectrum uh, based on this autism diagnostic observation schedule. And here were the children that actually got a diagnosis of full autism. So what differentiate these three groups, these are children that show less impairment. If you, by the ADOS, the again, this uh, autism diagnostic observation schedule, they would not have autism. But based on their whole history, they still met criteria for, for a clinical diagnosis. Then you have children that were somewhat um, imp- more impaired. They had an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis based on this instrument. And here were the children that came out with a full diagnosis. And those were the ones that was most uh, impacted. And here I want to briefly just show you uh, that when we, broke, uh, when we looked at the pattern of activity uh, as we had done in the first study, we replicate the same pattern. But importantly, when we split this larger sample of, uh, of uh, children that had a diagnosis into the groups that actually did have a met criteria for full autism, we see uh, that the difference becomes even sharper. So these are larger areas that show differences between this group of children and children with uh, typically developing controls. But when we looked at that group of children that either met criteria for autism only based on the interviews with the parents, or that came up on the spectrum only, not full autism, then you see that those differences were sharply reduced and they actually would have not survived some of the uh, standards that we typically subject to our neuroimaging uh, data. So which, you know, in, in, in essence, this some, what I'm trying to, uh, the point I'm trying to drive at here is that subtle differences in the sample characteristics uh, across studies may actually impact, um, uh, may have an uh, may impact whether or not we are going to, you're going to see uh, findings replicate across studies. But symptom severity is not the only thing that modulate uh, responsivity of this system. And uh, in a 
For instance, in another study, they found the familiarity, the person that you are observing or that you are to imitate may also play a role. And what they've done here using EEG, mu suppression, what they've done was uh, having children looking at actions that were either performed by themselves or by a familiar other, or by complete strangers. And when you're looking at controls, this shows a little bit less of a response uh, to uh, complete strangers, but I mean, they nevertheless didn't show a response in the predicted direction across the board. Whereas in individuals with autism, they had very similar responses when they were observing their own arms and hands performing that action. So they were mirroring if they were mirroring themselves, if you will, but they show virtually no response when they were seeing the actions performed by a stranger. So there is an important modulation because somehow it relates to what Andy Melza was telling you about this notion that you, we typically, neurotypical individual, uh, think of others as being like me, like, like themselves. Um, we have done in my lab, I mean, another uh, graduate students did a study where we looked at uh, the self uh, versus other representation more directly. And we've done that by clever paradigms where we took pictures of each individual participant. These are sample pictures. They're not real uh, subjects. And then an unfamiliar others. And we created morphs. So by the, the, the difference here is that there are two people. And then by 20% increments, you morph this person into the other face. And what we asked the kid, the participant in the scanner was just to push a button where they could see themselves and push another button if they saw more the other person, okay? So it was a, a very uh, simple task. And when you are, um, what you're seeing here is that the responses where they were saying, I see myself, in this picture were remarkably similar. You see a lot of orange, which means that both the children that had an autism spectrum diagnosis as well as the children um, that were neurotypicals show this pattern of activity. But when you're actually looking at the activity associated with their judgment that they were no longer seeing themselves, they were seeing now more of the other person, the typically developing uh, children nevertheless activated the very similar frontal region, this mirror regions, that they also activate where they were looking at pictures of others. But you see very little orange in these frontal regions because the children with an autism diagnosis no longer responded in the same way. Again, this would be another indication that was this failure to map, to use the same neural circuitry to map um, uh, others onto your own representation. Okay. So we have also looked at we also looked at the same mechanism in a, a sample of neurotypical individuals looking at interpersonal competence and empathy. So we've already shown evidence that in kids with autism, you have a relationship between uh, activity in this mirroring circuitry and uh, their uh, social uh, impairments. And we wanted to see, does that apply also to uh, neurotypical individuals? And lo and behold, we didn't find the fact that that was the case. So these are neurotypical children. We gather parental reports that assess their overall interpersonal competence. The parents fill out a questionnaire asking, is uh, my kids get along with others? Is it liked, uh, gets in troubles a lot, and so on and so forth. And, uh, is, uh, and we related 
this measurement to the pattern of brain activity when these children were viewing those facial, emotional, and expressions, and we found strong correlation. So the kids that had the better interpersonal skills that the parents rated as being better or interacting with others were the ones that show the most activity, both in the mirroring regions, but also in this uh, limbic areas, the amygdala, which is a center important for processing emotion. So these were the children that it, what we're trying to point out here is this notion that by virtue of being able to understand what, how others uh, feel, you may be overall at a, at a benefit in terms uh, of your um, social relationships. And likewise, when we compare the children's tendency to empathize with others, we did find, again, the same kind of relationship with stronger activity in the mirroring regions and also in the um, emotional circuitry for children that had better empathizing skills. This is interesting because we know have known for quite some time that there is a, a great uh, level of, uh, re- there is a strong relationship between this positional empathy, the tendency to empathize with others, and the so-called chameleon effect, which is the, the tendency to mimic what others are doing. And, and this is one, just uh, an interesting picture. I mean, I guess I should update it with one from Obama, but the point is that it hammers in a point, and that is that we, studies after studies, behavioral studies have shown that we tend to mimic, to imitate people that we like. And very interestingly, and perhaps less um, stressed, less often pointed out, is that we also tend to like more people who imitate us the most. These are all implicit, spontaneous mechanisms. So imitation, uh, it's as Andy Meltzer had told you before, it's critically important for learning about the world and others, but it also seems to have this a very um, important role, and that is to develop affiliative behaviors. Okay. Um, one of the things that um, we have now evidence of is, is actually that this spontaneous tendency to mimic others, so this facial mimicry reflects uh, this spontaneous uh, automatic process whereby every time we talk and interact with others, we tend to mimic their facial expression. And ultimately, we may also feel the way they're feeling. And uh, what the studies show that it's actually uh, the level to which you mimic spontaneously another person's emotional expression or emotion relates to the reward value of the stimulus. So we are linking together this imitation, spontaneous imitation, and uh, a feeling uh, of, of, of reward. So it is rewarding. Now, there's also now evidence that directly link this process of facial mimicry to activity in this mirroring circuits that I've been uh, telling you about. And I will not have time to go over it, but we also have um, evidence that in children with autism, the reward circuitry seems to be hyper-responsive when it comes to social rewards. So we all know that social rewards are extremely important. And in this study, we have found that there was reduced responses in this reward circuitry um, to social rewards that were simply smiling faces, letting children know that they guess right or wrong in a task. So what are the implications uh, for our understanding of the human origins? Um, well, as I said from the start, mirror neurons have been discovered in monkeys, and they've actually been discovered in other species, including birds. So it's not that mirror neurons are, mirror neurons are what makes us uh, humans or they're uh, unique about us. Um, although some people, uh, Michael Arbib, I don't know if he's in the audience, uh, have argued that mirror neurons may actually have played a role in the evolution of language. I will not be the first 
person uh, to you know push uh, the case. I would leave that to him. But uh, I think I, I hope I convey to you that this is an important system uh, where it comes to empathy and uh, imitation. Now, both empathic behavior and prosocial behavior, as well as imitation, have been observed in other primates. But the extent to which humans imitate and uh, empathize with others, I think it's of a completely different uh, nature. And uh, I think that important question for the future are actually to address this and to understand why is imitation so more pervasive in humans? And uh, what may have fostered this increased motivation to be like others? So there are two sides of, of the, you know, of an important coin, which is like we learn a lot by this like me analogy, but at the same time, we also have this drive to be like others. And I think that those are two key questions to be answered. And we're beginning now to explore the relationship between this mirroring mechanism that may subserve imitation and reward mechanism. So we also, I think, should address this notion uh, of how mirroring mechanism may relate to theory of mind abilities. The notion here is, as humans, uh, because we have language, we are capable of uh, doing much more than mirror neurons or a mirror neuron system can allow us to do. But nevertheless, can you have this higher level? It's an important question. Can you have this higher level to your mind abilities if you are not constantly fed this more basic information about how other people feel, what they may be thinking, why are they doing what they're doing? And uh, lastly, at a more applied level, going back to Karen Pierce's talk, can we, one of the critical questions is, uh, can we improve developmental outcome for children uh, with an ASD diagnosis with early behavioral intervention that may actually target this circuitry, both this mirroring and this reward mechanism. And uh, there is a growing body of uh, research that shows that actually this may work. And with that, I thank you because I'm out of time. Thank you. My interest is mainly in neurology, behavioral neurology, but towards the end of the lecture I'll also talk about autism and its potential relevance to evolution. These are various collaborators involved in this research. Lindsay Oberman, who's now a postdoc at Harvard, Eric Alsula, Professor Pineda, who's here at UCSD, and he, I just see, see him in the audience a few minutes ago, and various grad students. And some of you may have guessed this slide was supplied to me by Eric Alsula. So I'd like to, uh, just an overview of the entire lecture, talk, briefly define the mirror neuron system. And then I'm going to make some predictions about what you might expect to find in clinical neurology, in neurological patients. And then go on to talk about its potential, ro potential role in the mirror neuron system in explaining some of the symptoms of uh, ASD, autism. And then, if time permits, potential implications for human evolution. So first, what's the mirror neuron system? Well, this is discovered, as you all know, by Giacomo Rizzolatti and his colleagues in the ventral premotor cortex. Uh, these are cells in the brain. Ordinarily, what we, we have cells that are discovered by Vernon Mountcastle and his colleagues, which are called motor command neurons. A cell will fire when a monkey reaches out and grabs a peanut. A specific cell will fire. Another cell might fire when a monkey puts something in its mouth. Another cell for pulling a lever. Another cell for pushing something. These are regular garden variety 
uh, motor command neurons. They're orchestrating the sequence of muscle twitches required for performing that semi-skilled action. Now, however, what Giacomo found was that a certain proportion of these cells, almost 15 to 20 percent, will fire not only when the monkey reaches out, or a human for that matter, reaches out and grabs a peanut, but when the monkey watches another ajit reaching out and grabbing a peanut. So they've been called monkey-see-monkey-do neurons or mirror neurons. Okay? So this, this is astonishing when I first heard about it, uh, indeed when anybody heard about it, uh, because it implies that this neuron is doing in a form of mind reading, so to speak. So it's as though whatever is looking at the output of this, of this neuron is saying, the same neuron is firing as would fire if you reach and grab the peanut. Therefore, Ajit is intending to reach and grab the peanut. So it's, it's doing an internal simulation, virtual reality simulation, of Ajit's intentions. So you can think of it, crudely speaking, as a mind-reading neuron. Just as there are also sensory mirror neurons and pain mirror neurons, you can call them that, in the anterior cingulate, which respond to pain, of your own, to your own pain, but also watching somebody else in pain. There are somatosensory mirror neurons in S2, there are cells normally which respond to, if I touch you, a single cell in S1, a group of cells in S2 will fire if I apply deep pressure. Similarly, if I touch you somewhere else, another cell will fire, depending on where I touch you. So there's a map of the body surface on the surface of the brain in S1 and S2. Now that's been known for a long time, they just call it sensory neurons. But a subset of the neuron, almost 10%, will fire when you touch, when, when I watch you, when I watch a jeet or somebody else being touched in the same part of the body. So again, you could regard them as empathy neurons, so to speak. So whatever is reading the signal from this neuron upstairs is saying, something's happening to Ajit as would happen if somebody were to touch you. So empathize with Ajit, being touched, okay, or stroked or whatever. But it struck me that, this is about seven or eight years ago, uh, that in that case, why don't you get confused? If somebody were to touch Ajit, same neuron is firing as somebody were to touch me, the same mirror neuron, why don't I experience the quality of the touch Somebody touches Ajit. I just watch him. I kind of have a sense that he's being touched, but I don't literally feel... My mind doesn't dissolve into Ajit's mind. I don't literally feel the touch sensations in my, in my mind. So, of course, one, one, one reason for this might be that the skin surface in my own body has receptors, touch receptors, which are pressure receptors, which are informing my S2, saying, don't worry, you're not being touched. Ajit, Ajit is being touched. Or, don't worry, Ajit is being poked with a needle you're not being poked with a needle. When he's being poked with a needle, I don't say, ouch, you draw my hand. It'd be a stupid thing to do. Right? <laughs> so, so the mirror neurons are being informed that by all means, empathize with Ajit, with his pain, but don't literally feel it. Now, this is an interesting hypothesis. How do you test it? So what we did was do a very simple experiment. Look at amputees. Take a person whose arm is amputated. He has a phantom limb. You can feel the, vividly the presence of the phantom limb. If I have the phantom limb and I watch Ajit being stroked or touched on his intact arm, prediction is I should feel that in my phantom. The astonishing thing is phantom limbs were discovered hundreds of, hundred, over 100 years ago, 150 years ago by Silas Weir Mitchell. Not discovered, but described. So and nobody had observed this or, or raised, raised a question, probably because people didn't know about mirror neurons at that time. So we did this experiment on two subjects to start with. The results were absolutely clear. So I imagine I'm the subject, my left arm is amputated, I have a phantom, and then, of course I can't touch my own phantom, but I watch Ajit being touched in the corresponding hand. In the other hand, too, as, too, as it turns out, but less well, but in the corresponding hand, if he's touched and stroked, I feel the touch literally stroking and touching in my hand. I remember the first time I did this experiment, I also poked Ajit on his hand, not Ajit, whoever the subject was at that time, poked him on the hand, and this chap withdrew his phantom saying, ouch. 
So this supports the hypothesis that metaneurons are being inhibited by a constant influx of sensory input. Now, even more interesting, this is a direct prediction from the research on metaneurons, even more on human patients. Even more interesting is, when I went home, this chap phoned me up and he said, look, uh, Ramachandran, I, I noticed something very interesting. I've been having all these aching pains in my phantom, thumb and phantom index finger. I couldn't do anything about. Right? It's excruciating. But now I simply ask my wife to massage her index finger, her thumb, as I watch, and I feel the phantom massage relieving my phantom pain. Now, this sounded astonishing, a phantom massage, but one of the things you learn in, in neurology and medicine is pay careful attention to what the patient's saying. They're, they're usually often not making it up. So we've since then confirmed this on other patients, but we need large-scale systematic clinical trials to establish that it's true. But I'm convinced it's true. So at the very least, mirror neurons have inspired a clinical treatment for some types of phantom pain in some patients. It's a phantom massage. Now, some of you may be aware of our earlier work with mirrors and phantom pain, which is not inspired by mirror neurons, but I'm sure they involve the mirror neuron system. So you have a patient who has lost his left arm, say in a car accident, has a vivid phantom left arm, clenched in a fist, excruciatingly painful, occupying an awkward position, sometimes a hand hyperextending to an anatomically impossible position, excruciatingly painful. How do you relieve this pain? Well, there's a long story behind this, but just to cut, cut the story short, given our time limits, you simply put a cardboard box with a mirror down the middle. patient then puts a normal hand, so that's a phantom. He places his phantom, so to speak, behind the mirror, on the left side of the mirror, puts a normal hand on the right side of the mirror, and looks at the reflection of the normal hand, and asks to mimic the posture of the phantom with the normal hand, say clenched. So it looks like you resurrected his phantom, and the phantom has come back and looks clenched. And he chuckles and he says, that's funny. You know, of course, he's not delusional. He knows it's not come back, but he finds it amusing nonetheless. Then I say, I want you to now send commands to both hands to open or clench or do mirror symmetric movements like conducting an orchestra, waving goodbye, while looking inside the mirror. Because what he's going to get is visual feedback for the first time in 10 years or 5 years since he's had this phantom. The phantom is obeying his command. He's getting visual feedback that the phantom is opening his fist, closing his fist. And of course, that's what he sees. He sees the phantom opening its fist, closing its fist, obeying his command moving to and fro, and so on and so forth. But the astonishing thing is, instead, in addition to seeing it open and close, he feels it opening and close as well. And this, in many cases, relieves the phantom pain instantly. And with repeated practice, the phantom pain seems to go away for good. There have been controlled clinical trials on this by Tsao and his collaborators, and this came out in New England Journal of Medicine about a year ago. But our initial studies were based on just two or three patients. In fact, the original study on phantoms with mirrors is based on a single patient. But I'm not worried about this. Sometimes uh, I have one or two colleagues who get riled up when you, show, when you present results from a single patient, saying, well, that's just one, an N of one. But my sort of standard response to this is if I bring a pig to the audience here, and I say, this pig can talk. And you say, yes, really? And I wave my wand and it starts talking. Well, how would you react? You wouldn't say, that's just one pig. Show me another one. And I might add that majority of great discoveries in neurology, major aphasias, neglect, anosognosia, uh, HM, damage to the hippocampus, were all discovered initially on single patients and, of course, then subsequently confirmed on additional patients. Okay. Uh, I wanted to tell you about another curious disorder called RSD. Uh, among the purported functions of mirror neurons are action simulation, as I said in the beginning of my talk, and, of course, theory of mind, and almost certainly involved in imitation because imitation of a skill 
requires you to adopt the vantage point of the other person performing the skill who you're imitating. Maybe pretend play, which Simon here talked about earlier. Empathy for touch, pain, and emotion. And possibly language, although that's controversial. So I'm going to talk about all of these. Well, not talk about them, just mention them. When Giacomo Rizzolatti was giving his talk on mirror neurons about 10 years ago, Eric Altschuler, a postdoc of mine, and I were sitting in the audience. And we nearly jumped off our seats saying, my God, this is... It's an perfect, almost perfect match between what you see here and the symptoms you see in children with uh, autistic traits. So we said, well, this is almost too good to be true because it's such a precise match. And there's no other neurological syndrome where you see such combination of traits. Um, now, I want to emphasize here that arguing that mirror neuron system is involved in some of these symptoms is not to, um, not to imply that there are no other etiologies for autistic signs and symptoms. Uh, in fact, you heard some from possibilities from Cushane, and you heard some from Simon Baron Cohen. So the idea that mirror neuron system might be involved complements these other theories, doesn't necessarily contradict them. So based on the striking similarities, we suggested that maybe there's an alteration in, 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 the, in the mirror neuron system in ASD, in some autistic children. Not necessarily permanent deficits, because let's take a look at the evidence for this theory. And it turns out, by the way, we were not the first to propose these deficits. In fact, Giacomo himself had hinted at the possibility, and others have. But I think we were the first to provide experimental evidence. We, meaning Eric Altschuler, postdoc in my lab, working in Dr. Pineda, Pineda's lab, uh, looked at new wave suppression, EEG, a component of EEG, human EEG, which is seen when a person performs an action. There's new wave suppression when I perform an action, like grabbing something or pulling something. And intriguingly, the same suppression of mu wave occurs when I watch you performing an action. In autistic children, what we found was the mu wave suppression occurs when the child moves and performs an action, but not when the child watches somebody else performing the action, suggesting to us very strongly that we are on the right track in postulating a change in the mirror neuron system. And since then, there's been some several lines of evidence. I'm showing you all the papers which support using fMR and mu wave suppression there are about a, less than a, slightly less than a dozen studies showing that mirror neuron system is compromised, maybe temporarily, in ASD. And there are two studies which claim that they're not. Now, there's problems with brain imaging studies inherent to, as emphasized by my colleague Hal Paschler and others, so you have to be careful in assessing this evidence. But I think it's fair to say the evidence for the mirror neuron theory of autism is uh, compelling but not conclusive. Maybe I should say suggestive, but not conclusive. Okay? But even so, I want to point out that it's now inspired treatments, uh, alleviation of some of the some symptoms in children with autism, uh, especially a study by Casanova, which came out in 2010. And more recently, my former postdoc, Lindsay Oberman, has been pursuing this at Harvard, using TMS, the mirror neuron system, transcranial magnetic stimulation, showing some relief of symptoms of autism. So there's three studies, in fact. Enticott in Australia, Casanova, I don't know where he is, his group, and then Lindsay Oberman at Harvard, showing that you can reverse so many of the symptoms of autism. So at the very least, the mirror neuron theory has inspired new treatments, even if, even if the theory turns out to be wrong. Okay? Inspired new treatments and treatment of options. Now, Pineda and his collaborators, including Datko, a graduate student, have started using biofeedback to enhance mu wave suppression in these. So I want to go back, backtrack this is something we're currently excited about. I told you about treating phantom pain with mirrors, which is astonishing enough. 
But it turns out there's another extraordinary syndrome called RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, or complex regional pain syndrome type 1 and type 2, which is medical jargon, meaning we don't know what it is. Okay? But we don't know what causes it anyway. But it's very simple, conceptually. You have a tiny little injury, often a trivial, relatively trivial injury, like a fracture, hairline fracture in a metacarpal bone. This causes inflammation, swelling, redness, pain, and temporary reflex immobilization to avoid further pain. And then this lasts for a few weeks, and then the changes get reversed, and the bone heals, the fracture heals, the inflammation subsides, the swelling subsides, the redness subsides, the temperature subsides, you're restored to normal, and all the changes are reversed, and you're healed, your finger is healed. That's what normally happens. But in a certain proportion, as many as 2 or 3%, this does not happen. The finger is permanently immobilized, permanently inflamed, permanently painful, and that's bad enough. But the whole hand becomes painful, inflamed, swollen. The entire arm becomes painful, swollen, inflamed, and immobilized and paralyzed, for starting with this trivial injury. And there's very few people know about this disorder, but it's, it's, it's a very, very sad state of affairs, because the patient's often stuck with it for life, and is severely disabled by the pain and the paralysis. So again, to cut a long story short, we suggested that maybe there's something like learned pain going on, and that is every time the patient tried to move his hand, you get visual feedback saying it's not, that it's excruciatingly painful. Move, pain, move, pain. So a heavy link is established between the very attempt to move and the excruciating pain. This leads to a permanent paralysis, pseudo-paralysis of the hand. The patient gives up trying. So we thought we could trick the brain by putting a mirror there, having him send commands to both hands, but not actually move the painful hand, but maybe a slightly attempt to move it. But he's going to get visual feedback saying, wow, it's moving again with impunity. The painful, immobilized, paralyzed hand is obeying my command and moving with impunity. This is kind of a long shot, very sort of uh, speculative idea. But it was tried in a systematic manner by Pat Wall, and, uh, who's a world, world's preeminent expert on pain, and placebo, as it turns out. He, he, he died not long ago. And blocking uh, uh, the name. Candy McCabe and others in, in Bath. They tried this experiment on nine patients, and since then it's been repeated on 50 patients by another group, and all patients of the 50 patients, the control group of 20 patients, all 20 patients, showed a reduction of pain virtually instantly using the mirror. Remember, remember they've had it for months, this pain. They tried all kinds of medical procedures and drugs. The pain drops from a, on a scale of 1 to 10 from 8, excruciating pain, down to 1 or 2, bearable pain or no pain at all, very little pain. And, all pain, and this is very, as good as it gets in clinical trials. If you compare it with something like Prozac, for example. Right? So you get a tremendous reduction in pain in all the subjects. And the pain reduction lasts for, after two weeks of treatment, lasts for at least six months. Now, how the mirror neuron system is involved in here is, I, don't, I won't go into, but obviously it must be involved. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.